Father, we come to you with our hands open, our minds open, and our hearts open, and surrender to you. Teach us your ways. Build your church here in Auburn. Use us to advance your kingdom, to push back the forces of darkness, to live lives so that the light within us shines so brightly that others see our life and our deeds, and you are glorified. Grant us understanding. Give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation and a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. And speak through me to glorify yourself and to build your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to begin by, this will be a little bit more of a recap sermon because I did so much talking about interesting stuff about the first society. Remember that? In uh, the fall of man. Remember that? And all that stuff. So for those of you that like to take notes, like to see things that, that can be helpful to you, here's a recap because we started actually in Genesis chapter, you know, four, I think it was. And then we got through that for a while and then went back up here. And so we've been, been here the last few months. And that's a recap, real quickly, so you guys can just see that. Um, I want to give a brief summary of chapters three through six before we go on and talk about the flood. In Genesis chapter 3, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here because I've talked about it so much, that, of course, as you can see, is the fall of man. And now you know what it was like in Eden, right? And after living in that utopian environment that was specifically crafted for man to survive and to enjoy and to just, in a sense, live, uh, I actually call it a stress-free life, Man believes the lie of Satan, and that lie is of an age-old lie, that he can become like God, willfully rebels against God and commits the first sin. And I think you know now what life was like in Eden and what life is like now. The consequences for sin are severe, are they not? Just think about weeds. <laughs> there were no weeds as we know them, Okay. There was guilt, there was shame, there were curses. For the woman, increased pain in childbirth. There's marital conflict in the form of competition with her rightful head, the husband. For the man, there's hard toiling work for farming land that produces a meager yield. And there's, finally, there's physical and spiritual death for all, male and female. But in all this, God is revealed as a forgiver full of grace. He provides an animal sacrifice for sin. It temporarily brings forgiveness and removes guilt. And the first society would have known this because Adam would have testified to that. And God promises a coming redeemer 
who will unite God and man once again in a personal, loving relationship forever. That's Genesis chapter 3 in a nutshell. And notice we move from the great creation narrative and what utopian paradise was like. We go right into it. And we do not know how long Adam and Eve lived in that environment, but I don't think too long. You wouldn't want to venture why they didn't probably live in that environment too long. Exactly. Did you hear that? They didn't have any children. If she was perfect, she wouldn't have been barren. You see? Because the first thing we see after they kicked out is they having children. So it probably wasn't too long. In Genesis chapter 4, when you see what Moses is doing, or God's having Moses do, is it's the creation or the origin of two societies. And here we find the first example of false worship. Remember the false worship of Cain? A deliberate, self-righteous offering that God rejects. And from there, we discover a host of other sins. Cain has unresolved burning anger. It's mixed with bitterness. There's self-pity. There's a rejection of God's word. It's followed by premeditated murder of his innocent brother, Abel. There's a hiding from sin. There's lying, a refusal to accept responsibility for sin. There's a protest of God's righteous judgment and a life lived in open defiance to God's punishment. How far man has fallen in a short time. Now keep in mind, all this is coming from the first child ever born in all of human history. That is Cain. And of course, he's the one who founds the secular society. A secular society that exalts human achievements. It perverts marriage. It's filled with senseless violence. Exalts pride, all the while growing in an indifference towards God. While boasting in evil. And all we have to do is open our eyes every morning and watch the news, and that is our world. And there are seven characteristics of secular society that I went over that descended from Cain. Remember any of these? They're a culture that is in open rebellion towards God. They worship the true God their way, and that is what we call, talked about as unacceptable worship. If you want to have acceptable worship to God, you worship God His way. Which again, by the way, and for today... You do not, you cannot worship God and not be here. You had your little excuse for the pandemic. You need to be in fellowship. That is a command. Okay? You need to be in fellowship. So if you're listening and you're not coming to church, but you're watching online, your worship is unacceptable if that's your pattern. You're committed to be here. There's no excuse. They were an evil culture. You know, Cain devised in his heart to kill his brother. They're a murderous culture. They're a lying culture. And the older I get, the wiser I become, the more I see that it is a rare thing to know the truth. The only way I can stay connected to the truth and know the truth is if I stay connected to God. But there are so many things that we have that are, that are lies of this world. And maybe it's because we're fresh coming off of a global pandemic in which we were told, if you get vaccinated, you won't get sick. And that was a lie. 
If you wear a mask, we now know, it will help you and you won't spread it. Masks are useless. They're useless. And so it's hard to know the truth. we're, We're defying culture. People refuse to submit to God. They were a culture that developed urbanization, agricultural, including livestock, arts, entertainment, metallurgy. It's shared by all. That was the first society. That was secular society. And secular culture is what it has always been. We have benefited from secular culture. It's a common grace. If you go to the movies, listen to music, you have a job that uses any of these agricultural and whatever, you are, that's a common grace that is enjoyed by all from secular culture. But at the same time, we know that secular culture is a corrupting factor in society. And alongside secular culture, we find the sacred culture that comes from the line of Adam through Seth. And you can see that here, okay, if you go back here, because what happens next in Genesis chapter 5? That's the sacred culture, the descendants of Adam, okay? And so what we see from the very beginning, what Jesus highlights is there are the wheat and the tares. Who is the wheat? The sacred culture. Who are the tares? The secular culture. They're there together, okay? And the sacred culture is identified by the phrase in Genesis 4.26 that then men begin to call upon the Lord. It's the worship of God. And in Genesis 5, again, we find a series of births and deaths. We see it here. Now, where do we read about births and deaths? Genesis, but where else do we read about it? And if you're not in the Bible, but where else do we read about births and deaths? In obituaries, right? And that's really what this is. This genealogy, it's an obituary. This person was born, and then they died. So chapter 5 reveals that as human society develops, life is ultimately punctuated by death. That as a result of the curse, you cannot escape it. And these series of obituaries are brought about by sin. And we see that even the genealogy of the righteous people, the sacred culture, is filled with universal death. No one escapes the consequences of sin. Now, this time frame we see right here consists of 1,656 years. So we've gone all the way up from Adam to Noah. And this sermon, if you really wanted to title it anything, would be uh, the why of the flood, because that's what the Bible is concerned about. It spends almost a whole chapter on the why of the flood, not the how of the flood. We'll look at that next week, how the world was flooded. But the why is where the most emphasis is, and it's because of man's sin. And because of the longevity of man's life at this time in the first society, we estimate that the first society grew to anywhere between 5 to 10 billion people before the flood. Remember that? I'm trying to refresh your memory, but that's what we talked about. We get to Genesis chapter 6, we find that mankind is so thoroughly corrupt and evil, it says this, that the wickedness 
was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's from Genesis 6-5. And despite all of humanity's advancements, we just went over those, the advancements of the agricultural, livestock, music, metallurgy, urbanization, uh, poetry, humanity is also advancing in great wickedness. And society reaches a point where it becomes unredeemable. God's patience runs out. Yes, you heard me. Eventually, God's patience does run out. And do you want to know why God's patience runs out? You want to venture to guess why his patience runs out? Because he's perfect. He has eternal, enduring patience. Why does it have a limit? Because of his holiness. Because of his justice. That is warring against his patience. And it will overcome it. It has to be satisfied. And it will come in the form of judgment. And so judgment for sin is now initiated in the form of a worldwide flood. But before the worldwide flood happens, we have four verses that illustrate just how corrupt society had become. It's found in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So turn your Bibles to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and we're going to talk briefly about what a depraved society looks like. And we're going to go through this pretty quickly because we've covered this before. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And the Philium were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, most likely the ancient world and the people of the ancient world were deceived by false prophets and false teachers, and they were preaching lies. And specifically, theologians speculate the lie that was being taught to the people and believed, by the way, was that age-old lie first put forth by Satan in the Garden of Eden. You shall be like God. In this case, the people of the first society believed that if they cohabitated with fallen angels or demons, which is what sons of God refers to in Genesis 6, that they could achieve immortality. There are fragments of that today. We know it was passed on through Greek culture because Zeus had what? Relations with human women and had children, right? You see that? Where'd that come from? That myth, that those stories? Right here, okay? Exactly. We see it in comic books. Superman marries Lois Lane. They have a child. What's his name? Superboy, just like dad. So the, in this case, the people of the first society believed that lie, that they could achieve immortality. And this sin was so wicked in the eyes of the Lord that eventually God sentenced these evil spirits to a special place in hell called pits of darkness 
where they await further judgment. That's in 2 Peter 2, 4. This is a terrible commentary on the state of the first society. Society has reached a point, such a corrupt point, that literally demons have taken up their residences within men with the purpose of cohabitating with women. This is willful, folks. And by welcoming demons into their families, what happened? Well, they experienced great wickedness instead of blessing. Instead of eternal life, they still lived under the judgment of God given to man in the Garden of Eden. And they perished because they're still flesh. People are still dying. Even the righteous are dying. Humanity, with all of its effort to transcend itself by communing with supernatural beings, cannot succeed. And in the end, it's just flesh, as Genesis 6 3 says. Now, what is so telling of the complete and utter wickedness of the ancient world, and I don't know if you ever thought about this, was that Adam and maybe Eve were alive for over half of those 1,656 years. I mean, that is eyewitness testimony to what life was like in the garden. I mean, there's no secondhand testimony about the folly of listening to Satan and the foolishness of engaging with fallen angels. I mean, Adam very well could have told them what paradise was like before they met the fallen angel Satan. Could have warned them by telling them what a horrible thing they sacrificed because of their sin. Yet even the testimony of Adam was not enough to keep them from demons. So man is so bad that he is, rather than pursuing God, he's pursuing evil spirits. Rather than wanting to connect with God, he wants to connect with demons. That's how far man has sunk. Well, just how bad was it? Well, let's look at verse 5 through 7, verses 11 through 12. Just how bad was it? And this gives us the why of the flood right here. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Moses, if indeed he wrote Genesis, uses four phrases that capture the depth of depravity. Great wickedness, continual evil thoughts, filled with violence, and complete corruption. Now, verse 5 covers the first two phrases that I just mentioned. And to use a pun, it goes right to the heart of the problem. The biblical understanding of the heart is not that it is the seat of emotions, as we tend to think of the heart, but rather it's the seat of thinking. That's how the Bible presents the heart. This is where we think. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Okay? And so the very heart of man, where all the thoughts are produced, is profoundly wicked. If you look at the word intent for a moment, 
it's related to a Greek word that means form, just like God formed the earth, formed man. We form thoughts in a similar way. So God looked into the heart of man, and he saw that everything formed there. Everything. Every image, idea, ideology, thought, pattern, philosophy, self-styled religious view, it was only evil continually. This means that every human being is at heart a sinner, unable to form anything in himself that is not wicked. I mean, Jesus speaks to that in the Gospels. Just listen to this, and it's pretty in-depth, but it's from Mark 7, verses 14 through 23. He calls the crowd to him again and begins saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of man which can defile him if he goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. He said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into the heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? And this verse right here says it all. All foods were clean. <laughs> you could eat anything. All right? Can I get amen to that? All right. Verse 20, he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men. And you can see Jesus is obviously referring to Genesis 6. Proceed what? Evil thoughts. Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, being late to church, missing my Sunday school. This goes on and on and on. But all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And put simply, our problem is not what is outside of us. Our environment, or the way you were treated as a child, or that you were abused, or that you were misunderstood, or that you weren't loved, or that you were deprived, or that society overwhelms you with all of its temptations. Our problem lies within a wicked heart that corrupts all that we think and say and do. That's what makes the discipline of silence so difficult and painful for us. Because when we're alone, and when we're silent, and we begin to look within, it is not pretty, is it? And this is true of everybody from the day that they are conceived. It is only not true on the day the righteous have had their hearts transformed by God through faith. This is why God spared eight people in the flood. They were righteous by faith in God's imputed coming righteousness in his son. The rest of the ancient world had no capacity to alter their own wicked nature. They lived indifferently to the word of God and were left in their depraved condition. And as we look at the flood in greater detail in the coming weeks, keep this in mind. 
the, the flood didn't change anything about man. It didn't change one thing about man. In fact, in Genesis 8, 21, I'll just read this to you. It says, the Lord, it says, after the flood, an offering by Noah is offered to God. It says, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Now watch this. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. See, nothing changed. That's Genesis 8, 21. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now, roughly 500 years later, after Noah wrote this, or offered this offering to God, let me read this. In Deuteronomy 31, 21. Then it shall come about, this is the Lord speaking through Moses to the people of Israel, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I brought them into the land which I swore. And God knows the evils to come upon his people because of the evil intent of their hearts. He knows that. It's coming. And roughly 800 years after this, we read from Jeremiah, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And roughly 600 years after that, Paul writes this, Romans 3, 10 through 18, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I mean, this is depressing, isn't it, folks? Their throat is an open grave with their tongues that keep deceiving. Their, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their heart their paths. In the path of peace they have not known, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Victor Hamilton perhaps said the best, this is not spasmatic, it's chronic. And what happens when the heart is wicked? Well, behavior becomes corrupt. Then what happens? Violence breaks out. Society begins to break down. In the case of the ancient world, not only did violence break out, but it says that the world was filled with violence. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was, it says, filled with violence. Okay? Now this took me about five seconds to do, and it's not a, that's not a compliment to me or to you. But this is what happened this week. Okay? You recognize this picture here? Who's that? And he killed who? Why? Financial pressure. His finances will become known, and so he killed him. Of course, what did he do? Do you own up to it? Of course not. Sentence this week, or this past week, to two life sentences, of course they're going to appeal. He shot them with different uh, shotgun and another another gun. His own flesh and blood and his wife. 
Right here is his other son. Of course, you can't see that. How about this? Recognize this one? This was happened two weeks ago. This was an update was, this is in Florida. This is a, a student that is beating a teacher's aide who took away his Nintendo Switch in class. Knocked her unconscious, broke ribs, almost killed her. The police were shocked that she wasn't killed. Okay. This is in, in, in class. Okay. The teacher's aide. This happened in Florida. What bothers me, apart from this, What's this person doing here? Absolutely nothing. Someone's, this is a video. What's this person doing? They're casually walking by. This has been going on for at least 10, 20 seconds. What's this person? This is a man. What's this person doing there? Absolutely nothing. This woman, thank God, is going to help. He's in class to learn, and the aide has the nerve to take away Nintendo Switch because he wasn't paying attention. Now, he's done this three other times. This week, they're going to do what now? He's already in jail for a million-dollar bond for, for, you know, I think it's like attempted murder because it was that, that bad, and it's on social media, and it's a big, big story. Say so he's not mentally fit. Yep. That's not the worst thing. I, I, I refuse to watch this video. Have you saw this one yet? Anybody see this? Familiar with this? This is a homeless man right here that is going to be executed by this man. And he hit, you can't see a picture. He's loading his gun. He's taking his time. And do you know why he's going to execute this man? I mean, literally, cold blood, boom. I did watch the video. I read about it. They got into a disagreement at a gas station. That was this week. And it took me five seconds to find this stuff. Obviously a little longer now, but I mean, I see it. You put it up there. That is our world. And we can say that, yes, it is to an extent filled with violence. But now and, and back then, this is what happens with a world full of people. Let me just go back. I... I don't even know how bad it was back then. I'm trying to paint a picture for you. But think about it. A world filled with violence, that's what happens when you have a world full of people who do nothing but form evil in their hearts. And for added emphasis, look at uh, verse 12. I mean, this is repeated over and over again. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. This was universal. All flesh had corrupted their way. And by the way, <laughs> what color is their skin? What color is the skin here, white and black and black? I mean, it doesn't matter your skin color. Yes. And this is... Within, it's just within. Think about this for a moment. Every intent of the thought of the heart of billions of people in that first society, it was only evil continually. And again, it's not just the behavior of man that is depraved. It goes right down to the very thinking of man, the very forming of all of his views. And don't forget... 
it's also multiplied exponentially or to aggravated by what? Their union with demons. This is what the Lord saw, Genesis 6, 5, 11, and 12. Well, is that what God still sees? Let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about the second coming. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 17. Luke 17, 22 through 30. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so, also be, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. So now we have a reference point. Okay? You see that? Days of Noah, days of the Son of Man. What's it going to be like? They were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in what? The days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that, the Lord, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus speaks of the days of the second coming as like what? The days of Noah and the days of what? Lot. We've just looked at the days of Noah and what it was like. But what was it like in the days of Lot before the destruction of Sodom? We're not going to go there. I'm just going to read to you verses 20 and 21 of Genesis 18. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Does God know what's going on there? You know why he's going down there? You know why it's written this way? It's another offer of hope and grace and that he does not have to do what he is going to be forced to do, which is to destroy this Sodom and Gomorrah and the people there. Because God doesn't desire that any man perish. And we know that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for exceedingly grave sin, which includes the rampant, perverse sexual morality of homosexuality. The cities were so wicked, and it wasn't the only sin that was there, obviously, but the cities were so wicked, remember this, that not even ten righteous people were found in them. So we can see the similarities between the days of Noah and the days of Lot before God's judgment fell upon them. But there is more. Notice the difference towards God in righteousness and holiness. 
Look at verse 27 again. What were the people doing during the days of Noah? They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, it's just life as usual. See that? Look at verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. Business as usual. You see that? Both days were absolutely indifferent towards God. They had a casual attitude towards exceedingly grave sin. Different forms of gross sexual immorality and violence. In other words, that had become the norm and was widely accepted. So the wickedness of man reigned during the days of Noah. It reigned after the flood during the days of Lot. And the wickedness of man will reign right up to what? Jesus' second coming. Is it any different today? In a sense, no. It's what God still sees. Now, I do believe that it was a little worse in the ancient world, and we'll get to that in a moment here. But let's take a moment and look at, that's what God sees. What does God feel? What did the Lord felt? Look at Genesis 6.6. 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. You can go back there, Genesis 6.6. 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. That tells me that God is not apathetic to the sin of man. Ezekiel said this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Jesus wept tears over the coming judgment of Jerusalem and Israel. In Luke 19, 41 through 44, he, he said this. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now, they've become, now they have been hidden from your eyes. In other words, folks, they had their opportunity, and it was no more. Their time was up. They would not be brought to repentance. It was hidden from them. They would not know peace. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. What's that referring to? The fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and it was horrific, folks. And surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children with you. And they will not leave, you, leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You did not recognize when your Messiah had come. Do you remember anything about the, the fall of Jerusalem? They barricaded themselves in Jerusalem. They lasted for a while. They were starving to death. There was disease. They were eating their own children. Okay? Those that they captured, they came out, they had stripped the land around Jerusalem. It was bare, and they were making these crosses and crucifying the people as they came out. God knew that was coming. This is why he wept. 
All they had to do was acknowledge him, but they would not. Now, what does it mean that God was sorry? Well, he was so sad that he was sorry he had made man on the earth. You ever get to that point? You're just so sad that you're sorry about the situation you're in or what, what happened. That's what God was feeling. He felt the disappointment of the horrors that had occurred since he made the glories of that pure Eden. It grieved his heart. And part of that sadness and part of that sorrow and part of that grief is what he must do. He has to do this. He has to bring judgment. And this is why he wept over Jerusalem. He knew what was to come. Pain and suffering and sorrow and destruction and death. And part of God's sorrow is not just over the condition of man, but the fact that God must do what he must do. He has no other alternative. There is no other choice. Man is left to no other choice. He must bring judgment, and that pains him. It's like when you have to discipline your own child. You don't want to do it, but you know you have to do it. And when that judgment falls, it's a grief to God. It's a grief to God because God does not change his mind that he is sad. He is immutable. He will not change. And yet, in the midst of all this, God graciously gave the first society 120 years to repent. Genesis 6, 3. For 120 years, that first society heard the preaching of Noah. And for 120 years, they rejected his message. Folks, out of 5 to 10 billion people, how many were saved? Eight. That's how corrupt they were. Now, how do we compare our time to their time? I think they were even more corrupt. Because we have within us more than eight people who are saved. More than eight people have the Holy Spirit living within them. More than eight people are righteous. So there's less evil, continual thoughts. Only eight back then. And don't think that the Spirit didn't work right then. He did. He was working. The message was the same, a coming Redeemer. Believe it by faith. This is the why of the flood. And it doesn't take too long for us to see why the world was destroyed. And so I thought to myself, okay, let's do a quick recap of that. We'll talk about the flood, the how of the flood, okay? How in the world did God flood the whole world? How did he do that? The evidence of the flood, all that stuff. We'll begin to look into that next week. But I thought it was appropriate for us to sit there and to just make this our application point. It's important to keep short accounts with God. You have a relationship with God if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That will never change. But your fellowship with Him, your communication, your experience of Him, that is affected by your sin. And yes, you and I are saddled. If you're a believer, you're still saddled with a sinful nature. You know the evil that you can do, the thoughts that you have that you don't share with anybody, but God knows them and sees them. And so, 
keep that fellowship open. Keep short accounts with God. Because remember, what's in us, it's been, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't define us anymore, but it's still there within us. We still have the temptation desire to sin. That is why God brought the flood. And God brings judgment. But thank God for his grace. Let's pray. Lord, as we close our time this morning, we thank you for this. It's a hard word, but it's still a good reminder. And it really highlights how gracious you are. You gave that first society 120 years to repent. You give us plenty of time to repent, to turn from our ways and to come back to you. Lord, bless us with your presence. May we surrender more and more and more of ourselves to you. Each day, each moment of each day, may we live in a vital fellowship. Help us to experience the union that we have with Christ, having been placed in him. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Bless you. Have a good sunny day.